Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and her. On today, we are talking about a new YA book that I cannot stop recommending to folks. This is one of those books that I actually think would make for an incredible school-wide read. Have teachers reading it, have school leaders reading it, students reading it, your parent caretaker community, your school board. We'll get into why I think that in just a minute uh, before I introduce our very special guest. I do have a tiny touch of business. Registration is still open for my online three-part workshop centering equity in the era of generative AI. That's with Chapters International coming up on November 2nd, 9th, and 16th. I have a link over there in the show notes if you are curious how generative AI tools like ChatGPT have quickly asked us to reimagine assessment practice policies and to rethink what our priorities for digital literacy are. As we continue to consider how these tools will continue to influence learning in society, we have got to center equity and inclusion in those conversations. For more on ways, strategies, and frameworks to help us do that, consider joining me for that November three-part series. Okay, back to today's guest. Don P. Hooper is a writer and filmmaker of Jamaican heritage and a programmer in a former life. His short story, Got Me a Jetpack, is part of the New York Times bestselling anthology, Black Boy Joy. His directing work has been featured in the Martha's Vineyard African American Film Festival, the New York City Horror Film Festival, and the New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival, and much more. Don P. Hooper also does voiceover in video games and documentaries. True True is his debut novel. I read it across two sittings. I could not put it down. It's an incredible story. Again, it's one that I think is really well-placed to be a campus-wide read. Welcome to the show, Don P. Hooper. Uh, Don, your book, True True, has been available for readers since August. It's been out there. It's great to see a lot of buzz, conversation that is growing, and I fully anticipate for listeners of this show, they're going to be hearing more and more about it. It's a story that deals with systemic racism, mental health, immigration, intergenerational relationships, so much more. And um, I was checking out an interview that you did. Listeners, I'll be sure to link to this in the show notes for the YouTube channel called Books Are Magic, where you talk about some of the kind of like the behind the scenes, how this this book came to be, um, you know, how part of your upbringing filtered into it. And you said something that stuck with me. This is a partial quote here where you said, quote, you can't fight back every day. Um, listeners of this show are educators. Your protagonist has a message for them in regards to, I think, this term resilience, the way that that gets used in a harmful way, like, oh, that student's so resilient and they shouldn't have to be, Right. In many ways, I think this is just an excellent book. I've recommended it to so many teacher friends, but of course that might not have been your intended audience. And I'm wondering if you could say more about who, as the author, who you imagine to kind of be like maybe an ideal reader or, you know, when I say to you, I think this is a great book to teachers. Are you saying like, maybe, maybe not? It's hard to gauge that question uh and and even the quote that i said um that you can't fight every day the context in which i said and i I don't know what 
I don't remember recall directly what the context that I said it in is, but the fact is several people, um, their existence is a fight every day uh, to, to many, uh, you know, j just being alive. If you're queer, trans, um, we saw from the murder of O'Shea Sibley, um, just just dancing is, 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 is a fight, right? Voguing is a fight. Um, but I think that the, the the issue or when I say you can't fight every day is it's, it's hard to maintain a certain level of fight every day. And it has to be varied. And you have to remind yourself constantly why you're fighting. Um, you have to find ways to celebrate because if you if you constantly fight and you're protesting every day, if you say, say you're in the street every day, um, that means every day there is an assault on your body, on your mental stability. And there's no moment where you're taking a chance to breathe and giving yourself that room to remind yourself why life is good or, or why the, the, the happiness that you're trying to find in life. And that is why I say that you can't fight every day. You could, you could very well, but like it, it, it hurts. It starts to break you down slowly. Um, and that that is its own trauma you know um and it's a trauma that you never have a chance to address because you're constantly in this war and it's like kind of why in true true i have uh gil is reading sun tzu because it's it's a war that he's in uh that he's not necessarily recognizing and he's not understanding the different scale of it and he's he's figuring it out as it goes along but because there's this constant assault on who he is, who he's trying to be and his goals in life. Like he, he came to a different school just to pursue robotics, um, his aspiration. There's this assault on his aspiration. He's not able to give himself that room to breathe, to exist um, and, and to just be a teenager, to just have that. Uh, so so that, that that's one of the reasons that I say that, you know, it's I, I don't want any teen to go through that. And that's when we think about the word privilege and what does that mean? It's that, you know, some people don't have to worry about SCOTUS's rules over their bodies. You know, that's a privilege that they have. And, you know, um, so, so, so I think that that's why I say, it. so, so, so this book is very much for teens and for, for teachers, because what it's about is, starting those conversations and for everyone to take a moment to reflect on their actions you know um teachers have great power <laughs> you know adults have great power uh people in authority have great power and it, it, it's the power to help and the, that same power can be used to hurt people and it's important that teachers also take the time to see if any of their actions will affect a child, will affect a teenager, will, you know, cause a teenager to second guess themselves. That a very, I mean, that's the most simple thing, you know, like gaslighting, you know, accusing a, a, a teen of, of cheating when you don't necessarily have all the facts. You know, I was having a conversation with a student who I'd gone to high school with and they brought up something like, about that of being accused and uh and 
I, I remember those accusations and it just stays with you throughout your whole life. And that's sad, but because at that point in your life, when you're 14 to 16, 17, 18, that's only like one fourteenth of your life. Like each year means that more. Um, and when you're like, you know, zero to three, you may not remember all of those things, but like in those teenage years where you're, you're figuring out so many new emotions and you're in a, this whole new environment. A lot of times students are with, you know, when you transfer to a new school or you start a new school, you're just like trying to figure out who everybody is. And if you don't have a chance to even do that because you're on the, this assault, um, it, beco it becomes very, very painful for you. And that, that, that exists with you throughout the whole time. Like even if you go to therapy, you know, at some point you may not be able to afford therapy constantly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then something, some new experience may happen and it may trigger an old wound and that comes up and it comes up in an amplified way. So, so teachers have a great responsibility, um, just like employers to recognize times where they may do microaggressions, where they may gaslight, um, where they may take away a teen or a child's existence and, and rob them of their, their individuality. Um, and that's important to discuss and, and to find an open forum where it can be discussed. And that's hard because that means sacrificing your privilege as an adult, as a, a educator, you know, there's this moment where you have this great power, you know, you're, you're charged with um, caring for a teen ostensibly and you have to sacrifice that and realize that what that teen has to say could educate you as well. And there's that give and take. Um, so I think that, that, so I think it is, it is for teachers to read as well and to, to have a dialogue with their students. You know, a lot of things are very intense in this book, but it's, it's done in a, hopefully a purposeful way that people start questioning if I have done that um, or who have I been in that situation. Uh, yeah, I think that's what I would say. <laughs> well, you know, and I feel like it's done in a, a really nuanced way too, where you dig into the language we use and what we are saying and sort of this idea of these dog whistles where the students in the book very much understand what that teacher, what that administrator is saying when they phrase something like, uh, you know, what's coming to mind is we've got this interaction with Gil. And uh, I, I think the administrator who says something like, I thought you were one of the good ones. And, um, you know, I think really looking at the way that language, as you were saying, you know, and sometimes I, I even hesitate to use the term microaggression because it almost suggests like, oh, it's just a minor wound. But as you're saying, like when it is wound after wound after wound after wound, and I think the book really does a good job of of showing how Gil is navigating this lab this labyrinth of just comment like that after comment like that after comment like that. So it's not a small thing. Um, and it, it's interesting to me that even in like a meta way with my question to you, it's like, oh, I could have actually taken your quote out of context because Gil in this book is also navigating not just his physical space, but this virtual social media world around him where things are taken out of context. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that piece about how teens today also have that duality of figuring out who they are, figuring out who folks are around them, 
their independence and their interdependence with their community. They're doing that like, you know, the, the school that they physically go to, they're also doing that in the social media that kind of surrounds that as well. Um, and I think that's a really important piece for, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself here, but I didn't grow up as a teen having to think about that. And I think for, for teachers, educators who are my age or a little bit older, who haven't thought about the complexities of that and how almost, you know, for a teen like Gil and for many teens, you, you almost, you know, as you were saying, joy is so important, but can I even go to my virtual spaces for just joy and just community? And that's a difficult thing to just be able to rely on too. I'm wondering how important it was for you to make sure that you were kind of presenting that ecosystem where I've got my face to face, but then I've got what folks are doing in social media and how that's also going to be a whole other level for me to be thinking about. Did you know going into this that you wanted to make sure that was, um, we kind of had like, I mean, it's, it is the world that teens live in today, but I'm wondering how you knew or how you were thinking about communicating both worlds that uh, the protagonist has to navigate? I think initially, I definitely was not. Um, and, and actually, initially, it was it, I, the book was going to be a period piece. Mm. Um, and I was going to take it, you know, in, in the 90s. Um, but then I did want to, you know, I just felt contemporary what made was a better fit for this. And with all the issues of cyberbullying um, that you see and, and the way news responds so instantaneously uh, to what happens, right? Th there's never a chance to like correct yourself before the news has already made an assumption about you and made a presentation about you, right? Um, we saw that when Trayvon Martin uh, was killed and the immediate reaction of the news, you know, um, certain news outlets, specifically Fox, <laughs> um, just kind of going after uh, Trayvon's character, um, accusing of what he did as if like just walking down the street with this attire on, um, whether or not he smoked weed was cause for him to lose his life as if, you know, putting like a price tag on, on life. Um, and making this very uh, choice, like, oh, if you do this, you die, which is which is something, you know, as, as Black people, we, we have to to always navigate, right? From the moment I was a kid, my, you know, my parents would tell me, like, if you wear that, you have to remember this, that the cops will treat you in this way, if you do this. And now this, with social media, it's just amplified in such a, in such a, an, it, it's, it's at such a, such a level that you're constantly in this atmosphere of suffocation, uh, being suffocated, because an average person or, or a person who is quite lucky gets to just scroll through social media and may just enjoy cat videos and whatnot. And this brings them like happiness. But then when you're scrolling through social media and you're seeing the way people are responding to you, or when you're thinking about how many likes you get or how many likes you don't get, all those things uh make you put another lens back on yourself and that's very painful and that's why i wanted to have this in the book because 
while he's just trying to navigate this one situation inside the school, uh, as well as the situation inside of himself, he has the eyes of everybody around him going on. Uh, he has the eyes of the news, uh, politicians, of uh, the school. And right, the school may not be directly saying anything because they have like a responsibility and they don't want to get bad press. But that doesn't mean people outside the school aren't weighing in on those situations. And now, and you have to take that in. And that that's painful and that's traumatizing for you when you're like, all these people who you put your faith in, uh, the same way when we say we, you know, when we, we make uh, statements about police brutality and um, the killing of unarmed Black lives, it's, we we empower the police with our tax dollars to protect us or we that, that's what it's supposed to be there for and that trust is broken when these things happen you know if we have that trust or we're supposed to have that trust it's broken um and that, and that's what i was trying to do in true true is just we have these trust in politicians in our community you know like theoretically you know your neighborhood your city, your country, all that is supposed to be community. You know, it's, when you think of the African village, it's not that your family is raising you, it's that everyone's raising you. When someone's grandmother dies, um, it feels like everyone's grandmother has died and they all come together for that. And that's the same feeling. And when you don't feel like you have that, when you don't feel like you have that trust around you, it, it isolates you. Um, it's like, who, who am I and, and where can I be in these spaces now? Because if I do something, this person will say that about me. And yeah, I could be like, well, I don't care what you say about me. But the, the moment you say that and when you say it with that intensity, you do care. You're just trying to make yourself harder. And that's the thing that a lot of Black teens face is this feeling that we have to continue to make ourselves harder and toughen up our bodies uh, as if that will protect us from the world. And then the counter effect is that we're never we never have a chance to be soft and that we never have a chance to express our emotions and that becomes another a danger you know it's like not having a chance to express yourself it's just like you lose that and you bury it down or you hide it and then what happens then you know so yes the social media um was became a huge aspect i started seeing that as i was writing um because you know the the moment things happen it's you know there's always shame somebody wants to sh there's always going to be somebody who wants to shame you sadly um and it's like how do you counterbalance that or or can you counterbalance it like is that a war you could fight you know there's too many levels you know you're you're, you're a teenager and it's like how do i fight all of these things happening at once and that is what people want you know that if i continue to make this barrage against you then you have no way of fighting back because you're being attacked on all fronts and you're not, you're not able to think about the basic thing that you want to do, which is succeed in school or just, you know, be a teenager, go to a party. You can't do any of that because you're constantly at war. And, you know, the mechanisms for war have been in place by institutions for so long because they've been doing this forever. Right. And then the moment we think, it's changed, you know, uh, like Roe v. Wade just being just thrown out, you know, that kind of thing is just like, that's institutional, you know, that literally is an institution just taking away our rights.
and it was fought for and it was there was a constant barrage and a constant setup to take that away again eventually and then it happened um so so i think it had to be like there had to be for this kind of story to, for it to be bigger and to speak to the larger story of what's happening um in this country in the world uh social media is just a big part of it because it's it, it's hard to exist without it you could plug out for as, as long as you want but then your friend is living inside of that and then other people are living inside that. and then other people are being brainwashed by it in in many ways um so so it has to it, it needed to to find its way into the story yeah i, I mean I'm, I'm glad it did because i think it also, you know, we, we have a, a group of teens who also decide we're going to mobilize it for ourselves. And that exact anecdote in your book, I have seen actually happen in schools a number of times. And so I think you've got this really great balance of it can be weaponized. We can also decide that it's going to become an organizing part of our system. And, you know, I want to get back to what you were saying about systems, because I think for me, you know, somebody that's taught teens, there there are folks that I will talk to when I mention like, oh, I was really enjoying this YA book. And they're like, well, you're in your 40s. Why are you reading YA? And I'm like, when is the last time you've picked up a work of YA? Like, if you have never read YA, like, try it out first. But this is a book that really respects the teen readers because lots of teams are thinking about how these things work as a system. And I love that your protagonist has this moment where he's grappling with the initial bully, Terry, and then later on he kind of questions, is this all just on Terry or is this actually looking at the school that made that bullying possible in the first place? And I think that, you know, teens are thinking about this notion of it's not just individual action, right? It's not just, you know, and looking at how the media will communicate like, oh, it's just a lone wolf, right? Um, and I think that that messaging and really interrogating, is it the act of one or are all of these things put into place to make this a place where bullying is possible, where racism can thrive? Um, and I know that teen readers, I think, will really appreciate that you you didn't try to um, simplify it. That, um, you know, I, again, I, I kind of just think there's a lot of respect for the teen reader as well as the educator reader. Um, but but what you were saying about this idea too that that battle that constant battle the protagonist also seems to learn I am not going to be able to fight this all the time on my own and we've got this great conversation about what it means to be in community um, and there's some discussion on like if as an individual I have been traumatized again and again and again how's that going to impact the way that I can connect or I have to disconnect to others. Um, and I know that school communities specifically, they've got to have that conversation around systemic racism, bullying, mental health. I think that readers will leave this text with a lot of questions, but I think one of the questions that they might leave the book with is thinking about the role of community, is thinking about school's responsibility as a community. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. Was community as a concept, something that you wanted your readers to be grappling with? Um, you know, was that important? And I, I kind of 
there's multiple different communities within this book, but I'm just kind of wondering when I say, oh, I, I think that's going to be a big part of the conversation. Uh, do you hear that and you think good, or do you hear that and you think, no, 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 Trisha, you're missing the point again. No, no, you, you definitely uh, see, see, see several points and step, several which I, I may not even have noticed as, as a writer. <laughs> um, but, but I think, you know, we always have to ask ourselves, how, how do we um, create an environment that encourages listening and giving, um, you know, giving of ourselves and also giving of our comfort uh, so that we have a chance to hear what another person has to say, right? That's, you have to give up something as well sometimes um, and just sit back and listen and, and hear that, you know, I, I, I'd hope that my fear and what I think that happens often, or at least that I've seen happen in several occasions, is that when schools have these conversations, it's a one-off thing. Uh, and it never continues, you know, because now we've moved on, you know, we've solved X, we've solved for X, and it, it's time to move on. And when one person hurts, we feel it, right? And then that always has this ripple effect that we never notice um, because either they're keeping it all inside or they have to burden somebody else with that. And then that person may be dealing with their own thing. So, but that person is trying to make space for you, but never get a ch gets a chance to deal with their own issues that are going on. So now we have another person that's compounded with this. And then who do they go to now? They, now that person is like, oh, now I have what you're going through, what I'm going through. Now I have nobody to talk to. Um, and if it's coming from above or around us, it's like, how do you deal with all of that? Um, and I, I think it's, 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 it's a constant struggle, but the, 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 what we have to do is just constantly figure out how to create environments where we're listening, but also giving up um, our comfort and our, you know, everything that we think is okay. Because like the, the, the minute somebody is, creates an issue and, says, and brings up an issue and then you make a contradiction, but what, but this is like this, you're not listening anymore. You're already saying that everything is fine. And in that way, that person has almost been gaslit. You're just like, oh, well, no, you, this person is saying it's fine, but I'm feeling this way. Like you're invalidating my feelings in this moment. And social media has a big, you know, like th there is no, there is no social responsibility in social media. Th there, it doesn't exist because it's just out there. It's like whoever speaks the loudest and whoever has the most followers trends. And that's, that's what's important. And, um, if if you never see yourself reflected in what's going on there, you know, because it's not trending and the algorithm doesn't like you that day or whatever, you again feel another level of isolation. So now you could be isolated at home because your parents are or your guardians will believe that the teachers are doing what they're supposed to do, you know, and they're, you know, you have parents who are working multiple jobs. So it's harder for them to think that, so to, to think about what's going on with your life, you know, and that's another thing. And then, it's, so, so it's just like, if each group doesn't take a chance to listen 
and to give of themselves that time, the, 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 the problems just compound. And at some point, there's several people who have never had a chance to talk, never had a chance to be heard. Um, and that, that's just painful because that just creates all the problems that we have in the world today. You know, it's, it's, it's this lack of listening and lack of taking time to recognize somebody's humanity. Uh, and, and that's a moment that is, is sad, just thinking about that part, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's painful to think that somebody has had their humanity robbed in, on so many levels, you know? Um, so many different populations have that. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. And I, because um, I, I know I sometimes ramble on, but. No, you, you absolutely, you did. And you, you kind of, you know, there's this phrase that I hear kind of used in schools a lot where it's like, I'm going to give that student a voice. And even that, I feel like that student has a voice. <laughs> We're not giving it to them. They have one. Are we actually, as you said, like listening and considering, or are we silencing? Um, so I think, you know, the, the book brings up this idea of, and I've heard this used to like, oh, it's a school tradition for who, and for whom right. do the traditions, where should that ownership actually be? You know, um, I, I really love that you grapple with that piece. Cause I feel like that is a word and a concept that's been weaponized against marginalized students always oh but this is our tradition but when you say our do the students factor in who's our um so i really think you so you so brilliantly make sure that that's that's a question that i think schools really need to wrestle with do the traditions actually mirror your current students to what extent were they shaping them were you listening to them in deciding what is a tradition and and right. which ones you know like hey it's okay to let go of stuff like we have to let go of stuff um but yeah that that student voice and student ownership thing i think it, again it, it this is why i really think some schools do a book group where they've got teachers parents and students this is a great one for that because i think you've got that big zoom out perspective on how all of those dynamics play out thank you um yeah it, it's one of the reasons i started the book off with community like gil's experience with his friends uh that's kind of the first moment of community and the moment he leaves and i you know in a lot of books or, or stories and tv where a student transfers to another school they completely are separated from anybody and they never contact with their, with their friends. Um, and, and I wanted this thing where it's like, yeah, that community still exists, but now it's like, how do you find this new community here? And how do you trust anybody? How do you trust anybody that you have the chance to be who you are or to say what you want to say? And that's the thing. It's just like, yeah, you have a voice, but can I use it in an open way? Can I use it without the moment I speak that it's being taken away? Um, you know, some some of the lines that I think the dean says can be construed as cliche, like the, you know, being one of the good ones or that this is ghetto. But like the fact is that it's still used. 
And that's the, the sad part about it. It's like, oh, that some people think that this doesn't happen anymore. Yet, when you start talk about traditions, people are constantly trying to maintain tradition. So the fact that people are fighting to maintain these artificial traditions, they are also maintaining these uh, racist, sexist, uh, queerphobic uh, traditions of, of hatred. Um, and and, and it, it just keeps propagating uh, and, and keeps manifesting in new forms. Uh, so, so that's why it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's just very important that when, you know, when you're saying like, we're giving them a voice that you realize that like, no, like, like, as you said, like that student had a voice, they always had a voice. And how often has that voice been silenced? And are you recognizing their intelligence and their emotional intelligence the whole time and saying like, let me just hear what you have to say and realizing that education is a partnership you know, you're, you're showing me things that I don't know. And the students are also showing things that like, they're recognizing things and learning faster than the adults have because of technology. This, so their, their brains are moving faster. Um, and you have to be able to like, take the moment be like, okay, what's your perspective? Why do you say that? Like it never, that never comes up. Um, it's almost the essence of when you have a good editor uh writing a when you're writing a book there's going to be editors or even just a friend who's going to give you feedback there's going to be certain people who are going to say why don't you you should you should do this you should do this and the moment they do that they want to write the book and your goal is to find an editor or a friend or or somebody who reads it and is like what what are you trying to do how, how do i I'm trying to make sure whatever you're trying to do is stronger, which I had a great editor, Stacey Barney, who, who helped me do that. And it's like, what she would always say, what are you trying to do? What is your goal with this character? What is, and it's just like, she's asking me questions to try and get me to verbalize it in a way, uh, instead of like imparting what she thinks it should be. And that's super, super important. Um, because it's it's the it's it's how you create it's how you you know improve, uh, and and that's what teachers have to do is just go through that line of questioning, and it takes time, and a lot of times you want to like jump in with an opinion, and you have to to hold that back, um, or not hold it back. You know, it, 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 you have to train yourself to just say what this person is saying is is a real thing, and it it's valid. So let me just listen you know and we always say create space for it. it's like that that's a huge thing that, that's something we have to train ourselves and untrain another part of ourselves because we were conditioned uh to always you know when you look at the world and uh everything is about who yells the loudest and whoever shuts you up in many ways that is thought as the thing to respect like this is a like look at this person they're so uh powerful Um, yeah, so, so a lot of times we're taught to like, a lot of times the voices that are celebrated are ones that are the ones that silence other people. Um, we have a culture of championing that, you know, it's when people talk about patriarchy, that's one of the things that they talk about is like this person just loud and 
shuts people up or is aggressive in a way. And that is something that is celebrated. And it's like, no, it's what leads to more conflict. It what leads to more war. How do you dismantle that? How do you take a take a beat to breathe and to to recognize everything? And you know, humanity is, is such a huge thing. And you would think that it would be easy to recognize somebody mm -hmm. else's humanity, but it, it's difficult because community and culture is 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 happening constantly and if there's a culture of saying that this is the way it's supposed to be and that this tradition exists and this is what defines um america is this cowboy image that was really about murdering several populations um if that's the the, the image that we're celebrating then you're just leading to like more murder which is why we have so many i don't know it's <laughs> It, it's it's a, it's such a big conversation, but it starts with the small conversations, right? So it, it starts with that feeling of like, can I just have this conversation one-on-one -on -one with you? Then can, now that we too have had this conversation, can we have this conversation with another two people? Now we've expanded that conversation to four and it's continuing to expand those conversations, but understanding that at one point, if, if a person's humanity is not recognized and there's no conversation that could be had in many ways, because then you didn't allow for that person to, to have a voice. So that's the first thing that we have to do is like give of myself and say that I'm giving up this image that I've had or this thing that I've been holding on to to allow you uh, to speak the truth that you have. Um, and I think that 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 is very hard, um, but at the same time, it's very hard for the person who has been silenced this whole time. Yep. Um, so that that's that's the bigger thing. It's just like recognize that this person is constantly under assault. If can you take the moment to realize that, um, and what that person might be going through? It's not just a joke to be said lightly, you know, like, can you realize that? But like, oh, I, I want to, why can't we just say these jokes? And it's just like, because there's a long tail effect. And then we have, you know, people who are, and I just go back to the recent murder of O'Shea Sibley. It's just like that culture uh, made that happen. This, this kind of culture of this toxic culture and uh, queerphobic culture uh, made that happen when somebody is just dancing. Uh, listening to Beyonce and it's, you know, and, and, you know, as black people, we always say like, oh, you know, you were listening to hip hop, you listen to rap music. And it's like, well, what about this time? What about this time? And then it becomes an outlier. It's like, no, it's just that this black queer person is under attack by a culture that allows it because that culture does not, traditionally does not recognize uh, that life. Um, so, you know, it, it's just it's just these really granular and, and, and conversations that we have to have on like a one to one level uh, over and over again, um, because it, it doesn't stop. You know, we're, we're being bombarded by TV and media 24 seven. So it's just like one conversation is just not enough. Um, and it's it's a lot of everyone has to just remind themselves to do their own work and not say, what can I do? 
you know it's 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 such an easy thing like oh here here's a list of things to do it's like do you, the research mm-hmm. question yourself take that time to question yourself see what moments did that you were complicit in silencing somebody's voice you know that's work that you have to do it's not just reading it's not just you know watching a couple documentaries it's not just uh looking at a book or going to a symposium on it or you know uh being a part of a, a DEI board a diversity equity and inclusion board it's sitting back questioning yourself and then if someone holds space for you and says like how have i done this to you um and and you're willing to accept that in an open way you know without in a without being confrontational you know maybe that's a way you got to do it but you you have to do that work where where you just look at yourself and see what you have done in those situations and it's like it's going through your entire life and charting those out and seeing those small moments and like wondering you know you have to go on your own tour of your life and 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 see what you did or see what you didn't do like what time did you were you in a room and you saw it happening to somebody else and did nothing but that person that was allowing it w- w- was being the aggressor did you say something to them or did you say something after maybe in that moment you know you didn't know how to approach it did you say something after did you continue to befriend that person without questioning them or just like checking them if you are in fact friends so i think that's that's what the work that everyone has to do um and and that that's that's across the board uh because i i you know, it's it's not like i don't have to do that you know it's it's like i have to do that constantly you know um and i you know it's just sitting down and just listening <laughs> and 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 recognizing humanity it's it, it, you would think that it would be like intrinsic quality that we have but it, it it seems like we're conditioned to not do that in many ways oh well and again it's sort of when you think about why is it that listening skills haven't been prioritized you know many schools will have like a speech club or a debate club but you know as, as you said it's it's the the true deep listening where we're willing to appreciate where we were wrong and admit it and think about why that matters. Like, I, I think it's it's not a glitch that that wasn't something that was a big part of the curriculum. I think it's sort of by design. And that introspection that you're talking about, I think it's also realizing if you truly feel like you can't do that work on your own, don't necessarily outsource it and, and burden someone else with it without their consent. You know, like there are folks who you can pay them like that is literally their profession. But the other thing that I see sometimes is the whole like, I, I'm i not willing to do my own work and I'm gonna put it on somebody else to have to do it for me. And I think, uh, again, just talking about what cycle are you perpetuating there as you've mentioned of harm and harm and harm and harm and harm. But I think, I think it is so important for educators when you have done that introspection to be sharing some of those stories with your peers about what you do differently now and why. Um, you know, many years ago, a conversation that I had with with my wife, um, you know, I, I give a lot of formal presentations and workshops and for years we worked at the same school where 
she might have been in the audience and she got like really irritated with me one day and she was like there's something i need you to stop doing she's like you always do these self-effacing jokes about yourself as a lesbian why do you do that and i was like i think i do it to make people feel more comfortable with the fact that i'm gay and she's like why do you need to do that and i was like yeah and she was like what do you actually think people are hearing when you do that and i really was like wow yes it's my like own internalized homophobia that's making me think i don't belong here I have to make sure that other people are comfortable with me because like, oh, wow, they're doing me such a favor by even letting me be in this space. And it was like, I will never do that again. And I really want to check myself for where else that internalized homophobia is showing up because I'm just going to perpetuate, you know, as you were saying, jokes are not like innocent. Every single murder that you've talked about already, there's a lot of research out there about how online hate shows up in the so-called real world, right? Like those two things are not separate. And so sometimes when people are like, it was just a joke, it was just an innocent comment. How do you know? And for, for who is it innocent? And why is it funny in the first place? Why is that joke funny? What do I have to believe in order to think that that's something to laugh about, right? Um, I think those conversations and doing that work is really, really important. And I think those moments that we can share, hey, here's something that I've changed. Um, I was working with a, a great school leader who said one of her favorite interview questions is to ask teachers, tell me one thing that's really different about your practice now, as opposed to when you first started. And she's like, and I know if folks can't tell me something that they're doing differently. She's like, I don't care if, if it's just a year or two. Like you, you've learned lessons along the way, right? And if you're not, as you said, like it really means you're not taking the time to do that critical reflection. So I, I kind of love that as a, what are you doing differently now? And making sure we're sharing that because it's not as though listening skills are important and impossible. One of the, my favorite episodes that I did on this show is with Bridget Todd, who, whose podcast, uh, There Are No Girls on the Internet, is like one of the best shows out there, critically acclaimed, great program. And when she came on, I asked her about her whole model of listening. Like she is somebody that I think of as like a listening mentor. And she said, Trisha, I worked at it. I wanted to be a good listener. So I think that's a great message for students and young folks in our lives too. Like not only are these skills important, but they're accessible if you decide to prioritize them. So that's, you know, anytime I hear somebody say to somebody else, like, you're a good listener, ask them how they got there. Because it's not, you know, just this innate, like, I am born as a good listener. Um, lots of folks really work on that as a craft. So it is something, it's like a muscle you can exercise. And, you know, you've, you've talked multiple times in our conversation about the significance of voice. And I'm wondering, is it important to you? And have you thought critically about it? Because you've had opportunities to flex your muscle, your voice, so to speak, because you're an artist in so many different ways. You're literally a voiceover actor um, and you've also worked in film. So I'm kind of wondering how did maybe like finding your voice in those other mediums help you find your voice as an author? Like, 
was there is there like a skill connection there or is there even like a thought process when you're working as an artist in those mediums that does transfer over or did you feel like this was totally different not like any creative work you've done before i mean writing a book is is is, is fully different from anything because it's just so many words <laughs> it's, it's, it's there's a lot of words and when you write a script um you kind of you leave a lot open for the cinematographer to define. You know, the cinematographer is gonna the director of photography is having a lot of stuff behind the camera, right? The the lighting, the rigging, um, to create a certain feel. You have the production designer who is handling everything in front of the camera, like what is going on the table, where the location is how that location is going to look, how it's going to resonate with the viewer at home, what objects are being inter are interacted with. Um, and any practical lighting, you know, like, you know, lamps and all, all that. Uh, then you have a director who's going to like make all that come together with the actors, you know, and get a certain performance out of the actors who are interacting in this world that somebody set up uh, behind the camera, somebody set up in front of the camera are using the words that the writer put down. As a, as a novelist, you have to like do all of that. <laughs> For me, I'm, I'm good at, in my mind, I, I'm good at writing dialogue quickly. So, so if I start off with dialogue, I can do that easily, which is always the problem with my scripts is just like, okay, I know the director is going to handle this, but like, you got to put in more information here. For me, uh, as, a, as a writer, it's like, okay, when I do the dialogue, I see how a person is reacting. I see how this character is reacting. Then I see why this character is reacting. And then I could like do these kind of like mathematical, okay, now I know who this character is. Because sometimes some writers can go in uh, and figure out who a character is beforehand me have to write out their dialogue and see how they'll react to certain things um, to see if they are stubborn, if they were calcitrant or if they're vocal or they're quiet, you know, you're trying to figure that out through the dialogue and how they respond. Um, and then since you have this kind of gift of being the production designer, you get to like figure out the world that this is existing in, 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 in a more, in a more hands-on approach, I feel, when you're writing a book. Like, one thing for me, when, when, when I watch a TV show or a movie that takes place in, say, another country, or in uh, a school, or in, in New York, or in Chicago, or Miami, and I'm looking at it and I could tell that there's a lie being told. Like, we're not filming in New York. We're not filming in the Caribbean. We're not filming in Asia or Europe. This is a soundstage. I hate that feeling. So for me, having the chance to be the production coordinator and be the director and being like, Brooklyn is going to be a character in this story. How do I make Brooklyn come alive? Um, and that was a big thing for me. Like that opening scene is just like, I want to make sure that Brooklyn is captured in a way where I feel like it's there. 
um, I wanted to create language where it's just that I'm throwing in a certain piece of language just every two chapters. I don't. I wanted that to be pervasive throughout the book. And, you know, for some readers, they may look at it like they're typos and it's, it's they're not, you know, it's black culture has a huge influence on etymology and, and, and that and the shaping of it, you know, we, we, we add in a lot to that gamut and then it's criminalized, but then it's used by marketing agencies. So I wanted to use that throughout. Um, I didn't uh, like give a cushion for it necessarily, but there is this moment where, you know, he sees that he's code switching. You know, he, he Gil recognizes that he's code switching. So, so I think that when, when you think of that, how that art affected, I don't know if necessarily voiceover affected it much, but definitely being an independent filmmaker had a huge impact on this because it was just like, okay, I remember when I'd be in conversations with production uh, designers and how they looked at a scene um, and then listening to them and listening to the director of photography how they're framing it and they're like their lens is is it wide or is it like are we focusing on this and on this like really extreme close-up and that intensity it's like okay now we're just focusing on what's going on in Gil's brain it is that extreme close-up and you're just seeing his eyes that's the only thing that's important right now and how he's feeling um and and it's it's because now we're in this extreme close-up that Gil may be blinded and I mean, I say blind, but, but like he, he may uh, not see and recognize what's going on externally. He's not seeing what's going on with his friends. You know, he may not see all that because he is also in an extreme close-up on himself or an extreme close-up on this part of the world because he's only one person and he's trying to figure out all these parts and how it works together while just trying to be a teenager. So I think that's that's the interesting thing, like when you are an independent filmmaker and you start to see all the moving parts of a production. And when you have this huge production, there's so many people that are involved in making it happen. Um, and then you just like kind of just sit back and, you know, we talked about listening and try to gain those skills of listening. It's just like a director has to listen to the cinematographer and why these things are thing to, are necessary, why these, this lighting is necessary, how it's going to impact the scene, has to listen to the production coordinator of like why having the set look a certain way or having this location is going to evoke a certain feeling in the audience. And you're you're taking all those, or I, I mean, I, at least for me, I was taking all those kind of things and being like, okay, now I'm on my rewrite. Let me be the production court designer. Okay, this is, is, do I feel like I'm in this environment? Do I feel like I'm in this apartment building? Do I feel like I'm at Vandiver in this park? Um, and just going through that in my head, like, and sometimes it involves overwriting and then cutting it down uh, just to make sure it's like, okay, none of that's necessary. This is the importance. And then how do I feel being in that space and just closing your eyes and then watching the movie play out? being like okay now i now i feel it but voiceover wise when i was casting the the voice for not, not i was casting but like um when the audition started coming up for the voiceover there was when i finally got uh christopher grant i remember i was coming home from a strike line um one of the our production pickets and there was a bunch of auditions that had come in and i they weren't really like 
resonating with me. And I turn on this audition and it was over and I was like, oh, something must have went wrong because it was so good and it had brought the story to life in such a way that I forgot that I was listening to an audition. So that's the power of a good narrator. It's like they took they took me out of the world. I wasn't even thinking about my writing. I wasn't thinking like, oh, why did I write it like this? It was just like that voiceover artist created something with that audition and decided to to put their own spin on it. And it just like, it created a, a whole new new experience for me. Um, and that was beautiful. So, yeah. I love that because there are certain like podcasts and I've had certain audiobooks where I can't listen to this and drive at the same time because I'm not going to be paying attention to what I'm doing. But there are others where like, it's not hitting me in the same way. And I know like I am fully alert and, you know, taking every precaution <laughs> necessary when I'm driving. But with all three examples, you're also talking about, which is like the big broad theme, I think, for our conversation, listening to other, like this whole idea of what's the emotional impact I want on the reader, the viewer, the listener. Um, and I, I wonder if, you know, just in closing, you want to say something about that, how, you know, you've, you've won awards, your, your work before has been kind of critically acclaimed. And I wonder, is there feedback that you've received or again, like as an artist where you have felt, okay, like my, my voice has something like, does that praise or, you know, uh, does that sort of reception, did that give you a confidence for this book? Or again, it's a YA book. What did it mean for you to be really factoring in the teen audience and saying like, I want them to have an emotional connection to this? Like, did you already feel like I am really well-versed in factoring in what does the audience need from me as an artist in order to have this work really be meaningful, not just for me as the creator, but for the folks who are on the, the other side of it? Just, just a lot of respect. Uh, I just needed to have a lot of respect for the teen audience. Um, I, I learned so much from teenagers uh, to this day. I mean, I it's funny you mentioned speech and debate early because I sometimes coach speech and debate. But and there's just this moment where I, I guess. Being critically acclaimed I, I, or whatever acclaim that happens, it doesn't necessarily affect me in, in a certain way. I, it, it's cool when it happens, but it's really when a teenager responds and says, or, or anybody responds and says like, you know, I, I never got a chance to see myself in a certain light, or I resonated with this character, or um, thank you for writing this. That That's more important to me. Um, like when Black Boy Joy came out, um, seeing kids or parents post pictures of their kids holding the book mm. like a in their bed, like it's a toy going to sleep because they finally saw themselves reflected on a cover of a book. I was like, this is the most beautiful experience ever. Uh, better than any award because that's why I started writing is because I wanted to see more books about us or you know like I, I've had to read every 
character in school and I, I I enjoyed several other characters like I enjoyed Shakespeare for what it was you know but I didn't see myself and I wanted to see the reflection of my community I never got a chance to see that um and seeing children holding black boy joy or like parents writing like oh they've they don't like reading but when they read your story uh they just like oh, this is great. It's a kid of color going off on a space adventure. That made me feel empowered. Like I could fly, like I have a chance to do these things. Um, and that, that, that is exciting for me. That, that, that's more exciting for me than any, any award really is um, having someone a chance to say that, oh, I, I was reflected on the page uh, in, in any small way. I mean, that's a perfect place for us to wrap up because I know that some of the listeners, again, will have students who perhaps want to connect with you, let you know their their thoughts, their feelings in regards to the book. Um, I'm always a big believer in leave your reviews on Goodreads, leave your reviews if you check the book out from the local library. If that author is on social media, like reach out, tell them, you know, if your class has a little YouTube channel where you do any kind of like booktube or, or book talk stuff, like send it to the author. Um, do you have kind of a preferred way if a class wants to reach out and tell you their thoughts on this book, what might be um, a good place for them to kind of do that communication? If you have a favorite way, or if, if, if it's all of the above, Hey, all of the above, or do you want, do you want folks to be writing you letters and, and sending them to a P.O. box somewhere? Oh, I, I don't have a P.O. box yet. I don't <laughs> think I've reached P.O. box level. Um, I think I think if you're writing a letter on uh, donphooper.com, um, there's a form there to write a letter. Um, I have had people reach out to me on Instagram. I don't, I don't really check Twitter X or <laughs> anymore. Um, but like Instagram and, and uh, it's kind of my main platform and I'm sort of on TikTok. Um, but yeah, Instagram or my website, donpeepooper.com and mad clownetry on Instagram, which is, it's mad clown and poetry because in college people called me mad clown um, for whatever reason. <laughs> and I did poetry. And it, that that will now be your it. name there forever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Social media. What <laughs> it is. Well, I'll make sure to have all of those in the show notes. Thank you again for for talking about the book, your work, um, listeners. Again, the link to the the book, of course, is over there in the show notes. This is one of those books that I really think if yours is a school that does that crossover book club with students and teachers and parents, I. I honestly can't think of a better book for that kind of multiple audience lens. So Don, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on, um, on just what, what was, I, I read this book in two nights. Like I couldn't put it down. Thank you so much. That, that, that that's, that, that alone is a great thing. I'm, I'm grateful for that feedback. Um, yeah, you know, we every writer wants to know somebody finished their book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge thing, you know, because like certain books, you know, it, it depends on how you feel when you're reading them. You know, and some, sometimes you're like you're in the mood for a different type of book. You know? uh, I'm grateful to be on this podcast. This is, this is really cool. Thank you so much.